Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. If you have a friend, a potentially annoying friend in some respects, maybe you like this friend in other respects, but... This friend maybe listens to the Sam Harris podcast or has read a Richard Dawkins book or, I don't know, just considers themselves scientifically minded. Maybe they retweet Neil deGrasse Tyson pretty regularly. They may have said to you at some point, yeah, we don't have free will. Humans don't have free will. Well, those people frustrate me. Um, It is a common... It's a, I don't know, I don't know what to call it exactly. Is it a misconception? Is it a personality trait? What is it? It's a mistake, though. Uh, It is an overconfidence in one particular view of a very complicated topic. And today we are talking about this topic of, of how free is our will? Do we have free will, any at all? And, and how free is it? 
And the person that I'm talking to is no slouch. This is Bill or William Newsom. He is a professor of neurobiology at Stanford University's School of Medicine. He is in the National Academy of Sciences, and he co-chaired the National Institutes of Health Brain Working Group charged with forming a national plan for the coming decade of neuroscience research in the United States. He is at the absolute forefront of neuroscience research in America. He's also given the Mar lectures at Cambridge. Uh, dude is insane. He has an insane uh, curriculum vitae, and he is also himself a practicing Christian. Uh, and we talked about free will. So if you've ever thought, man, I just, I just wish that I knew how to talk to my f- annoying friend who's always quoting Sam Harris at me. Well, you could send him this episode and then you could chat about that, I guess. Um, but nonetheless, I'm very, very pleased to be able to uh, share this conversation with you guys. It's a really important topic. Um, I think that on the other end, you can have um, a kind of a libertarian free will, uh, hyper free. You know, our will is very, very free and we are self-determined creatures. And this leads to uh, libertarian philosophy sometimes and, and certain kinds of uh, conservative religion can overemphasize how free our will is uh, such that we are fully responsible for all our decisions, um, you know, completely on a complete level, level playing field with each other. And that's also not true. And our childhood experiences, for instance, affect our neurobiology. They affect our brains and they affect our ability to choose freely. And so I really like what Bill had to say in this conversation and I hope you enjoy it as well. Bill Newsom, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I really enjoyed chatting with you during that Theopsych Fuller Seminary kind of or adjacent, whatever it was, kind of online chat situation about a month ago. And I've been really itching to talk to you about free will since then. So thanks so much. Great to be here. You know, exercising my free will or not, as the case may be, uh, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess I do want to kind of start with this kind of big question of there, there's a sense in popular science world, you know, be it podcasting or popular science books or, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, kind of that level of engagement of the popular culture that neuroscientists and people who really understand the brain, they know better and they know that there is no real free will. You know, you get it. You, Sam Harris who in my particular perspective is neither a very good neuroscientist nor a good philosopher, but is very influential. I like him on some other questions and stuff like he did really well on Trump, I thought, but you know, he's got a lot of influence. And yet when I hear you talk and write about this stuff, you don't take that approach at all. What do you think is going on there? What's going on with that kind of messaging that, that finds its way, it seeps into the broader culture. I think that most neuroscientists are kind of knee-jerk reductionists. And I'm a reductionist in the sense that I use reductionist techniques in science to try to understand neural systems in the brain and how the activity of those systems are related to behavior. 
but I'm not an ontological reductionist or an ideological reductionist. I don't think that when you understand the mechanism and how some phenomena at one level of the nervous system is related to a phenomena at a lower level, I don't think that that lower level then automatically takes precedence as a privileged way of understanding brain and behavior. I, I think that explanation in neuroscience and understanding the brain is intrinsically multi-level. And I think that most neuroscientists do their research at a particular level of the nervous system, and they tend to think that that's privileged level. So if you have people who work at the level of neural circuits and systems, they'll think that it's the neural circuit system that really is fundamental explanation of behavior. If you have neuroscientists who work at the level of synapses and plasticity, they'll tend to think that synaptic change is the fundamental explanation for behavior. If you have neuroscientists who employ genetic techniques and really think that uh, you know the governing of the nervous system is rooted in genes, they'll think that's the really fundamental level we should all be aiming for. And I think that all of those kind of fundamentalist tendencies in neuroscience are mistaken. And it's not the goal to identify one level that's that's fundamental. It's the, the real goal is to understand how all of these levels work together to produce um, our, our mental lives, our cognition, our behavior. And it's not just those levels in the nervous system that produce our mental lives and behavior. We are organisms that are in interaction all the time with other organisms. And how we interact with the world influences the very structure of our brains. And we can go into that some if you want to. So, yeah. but, but I think that neuroscientists have this kind of knee-jerk tendency to think that their program is almost a triumphalist program. You know, that when in the end, when neuroscience is all said and done, we'll know everything there is to know about behavior. And it's going to be, tend to be at my favorite level of the nervous system. And I, I just think that's mistaken, but it, it is a ten strong tendency within neuroscience. Yeah, uh, when all the cards are on the table, we can let the physicists and the neuroscientists and the geneticists all duke it out for whose explanation of the world would, would be the, the triumphalist one. And, and, and you do have to be a little credulous when you note that people in these different fields all tend to have the same idea about their particular field. Lo and behold, how convenient. And it makes you think that it might actually just kind of be a function of human psychology that whatever we happen to be an expert in, we deem more likely to be the ultimate source of explanation for the questions that we're asking. Absolutely. Yeah. So great. That's the psychologist in me now uh, reducing the people in the other fields <laughs> using my tools to knock them down a peg. So it, you know, you can apply it back to me as well, but the point is just, it's not so clear, Right. Yeah, it's not so clear. And I I think that the, you know, the really aggressive ontological or, I don't know, ideological, whatever, reductionist agenda, I mean, it doesn't stop at genes, right? I mean, a chemist would tell you that, or a biochemist would tell you that genes are molecules. Uh, right. Uh, these functions that depend on chemical properties is the nature of the chemical bond that really is where the secrets are. And of course, your physicists, I mean, you get in this regression and, and down to quantum mechanics, right? And mm -hmm. which is our best physical theory of the universe now. And in quantum mechanics, the program would be to write a Schrodinger wave equation that can predict, you know, the motion of every atom in this room that I'm sitting in here for the next 20 minutes. It would be a probabilistic prediction in any given scenario outcome would be infinite 
infinitesimally small. But if you really commit yourself to that kind of reduction, that's where you wind up. And you might, in fact, get a Schrodinger-White equation that can predict well, but that wave equation is impoverished. It knows nothing about people. It knows nothing about curiosity. It knows nothing about countries. It knows it's nothing about planets. All it knows is about atoms and their motions. And it's just an impoverished. If you take any one level by itself, it's an impoverished explanation. And we have to face up, I think, to the complexity of our world, the complexity of, of complex structures like biological entities, and especially these complex entities that sit between our ears, you know, that are arguably the most complex entities in the known universe. That's exactly what I, where I was going to go with it is, you know, isn't it true that as far as we know, the human brain is the most complex entity or organism anywhere, anywhere in the universe in terms of the, the number of connections and the, the possibilities therein? Yeah, but cer certainly in the biological realm, that's true. You know, we have about roughly 100 billion neurons uh, in a healthy sort of, you know, young human brain, uh, each of those neurons, those nerve cells, makes synaptic connections or signaling connections with about a thousand other neurons. So you've got a hundred trillion synaptic connections in your brain. And I've heard people do kind of armchair calculations, wondering whether all the connections that exist in the internet today rival the numbers of connections in the human brain. And they might, right? But yeah. um, the internet, you know, is not a living thing that has some goal or telos to it. It's uh, it's, it's a very complicated, I, I, it's a different kind of entity than a biological organism. So you, you've been talking about levels, right? And so we can go all the way down to the quarks, the quarks and the other quantum molecules, and we could say, well, my quarks made me do it. Or we can go up to our the neuron level. My neurons made me do it. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a play on Nancy Murphy's book, right, uh, which is called My Neurons Made Me yes. Do It. Yes. Are you on that? Who else is her co-author on that book? No, it's uh, her colleague at Fuller, the, the School of Psychology at Fuller, Warren. Uh, oh, Warren Brown. Brown. Yeah, exactly. I just want to make sure I didn't mistakenly not not give you credit for a book you wrote. Um, and then we can go up to the the whole mind, right? Cognitive science is is not just about synapses; it's about the the whole function of our mind. But then, as you as you kind of alluded to earlier, well, now we can actually talk about myself in a family system, or myself in a in a culture, or a subculture, yeah. or yeah. our planet in a solar system. So there's all these levels of sort of causality of of pressure of likelihood of certain events happening right if there's a really big solar flare that somehow heats the earth up 15 degrees for a few days like a bunch of activities are going to become more likely than they were if it wasn't 15 degrees warmer more people will go swimming more people will get angry at their spouse because when it gets hot domestic abuse goes up right so all there's all these levels of of causality and of relationship, right? And I wanted to kind of make that a bit more clear because we're going to talk a lot about bottom-up and top-down types of causality or influence. Can you say a little bit about how you think of those terms, bottom-up and top-down? And then I want to get into some examples of each of those kinds of influence on our free will. Yeah. So there are a couple of, couple of things I can say about that. First of all, neuroscientists, even, even the you know, our reductionist committed colleagues and friends are to some extent comfortable with top-down language. So it's very common in systems neuroscience to talk about 
top-down attention versus bottom-up attention. So bottom-up attention are things that happen in the visual sense, for example. I mean, same is true in other senses. Things that just grab your attention happen in the world. Motion, something changing from dim to bright. It just grabs your attention. And that's a bottom-up signal that comes from the eye into the brain. And attentional resources in the brain are directed toward that novel signal. I was watching a film yesterday and my phone lit up because some, my wife texted me and I didn't want to be distracted from the film by my phone, but I couldn't help it. Right. A light flashed. I looked yes. over there. I would need to put my phone upside down so that I wouldn't see the light. But if it's up, I will be directed. That's a bottom up sort of influence on my attention. Exactly. But they're also top down. So if you go to the train station or the airport to pick up a friend and your friend, the friend tells you they're going to be wearing a red hat, then you're just scanning the crowd for red. And then that's that's because you have a prior right of what your goal is. And you're filtering all of the incoming sensory information for red. and You're looking for one red object to the other. And that is referred to commonly in systems neuroscience as top down attention. So you have a goal in mind purpose in mind and that you sort of rig the attentional systems in your brain accordingly. And so neuroscientists, at least at the systems level, are very comfortable with, with this kind of language. But I think I think there's a more precise kind of use of this language top down and bottom up that maybe we need to be um, comfortable with. And I'm relying here on intellectual resources from a neuro philosopher, actually, at Washington University in St. Louis named Carl Craver, who I find to be a very impressive person. He has a background in experimental neuroscience, but also is a professional philosopher. And he wrote a book in, I don't know, 08, 07, something called Explaining the Brain. And so I want to give credit to Carl for a lot of the ideas that I'm going to talk about here. I, they're, they're not original necessarily with me. But Carl argues in his book that any kind of mechanism in neuroscience and probably in all of biology is intrinsically multi-level. And he doesn't really speak of it as top-down and bottom-up. He just speaks of something being intrinsically multi-level. So I'm going to go on here for a couple of minutes. Is this okay? Yeah, do it. Go for it. Everybody put on your thinking hats and exactly. uh, and yeah, Bill, just just uh, you know, explain terms as you need to as you go along. Exactly. So, Carl gives an example in his book that I think is probably a good one of you know, neurobiologists want to understand spatial memory. Okay, and that's probably something that we understand the neural mechanisms of better than most uh, sort of psychological phenomena. First thing you do if you want to understand spatial memory is you you reduce it to some kind of behavior you can measure in a laboratory, right? And for neurobiologists, that's frequently a rat or mouse that learns to run a maze and remembers the solution of the maze, where the reward, the bait lives. But then once you have that behavior down, uh, you study typically a structure called the hippocampus that we know is very important for short-term memory. And we know there are spatial maps of the world in the hippocampus, the structure in the brain. But then when you say, okay, the hippocampus makes a spatial map, any scientist worth their salt will say, well, how does that happen? How do you get a spatial map in the hippocampus? And then you get down to synaptic and circuit levels, and you get down to synaptic change and learning. And how do those synapses change and why do they change? And so the, you get into this uh, little molecule, a really important molecule called an NMDA receptor that we know is very important in learning and forming of maps and hip campus and other places in the brain. But then you say, well, how do those NMDA receptors get there? How is their level regulated? And that gets down to genes, right? And 
So Carl points out that if you want to understand a neurobiological mechanism of something like spatial memory, you have to engage all of these different levels in order to have an adequate explanation. Now, you can talk about those as kind of top-down. The hippocampus is a larger structure than a circuit, which is larger than the NMDA receptors, which is larger than genes. But really, it's just multi-level. And he would say that uh, important causal activity is going on at all of these levels simultaneously. And you can affect the lower levels. You can affect NMDA receptors and gene expression by making manipulations at the higher level, by changing the behavior of the mouse, putting them in a different maze, right? You put them in a different maze to solve, and you've got change rippling all the way down through the system. Or you can change things at the lower levels by making a knockout mouse that doesn't even have NMDA receptors, right? And you change activity at the higher levels so that, you know, he views this changing, the ability to manipulate is the key metric of causality. He kind of tries to take it out of the world of ethereal philosophy and think about it the way that a natural scientist would think about it. And causality is where it's a knob you can turn and manipulate the system. And these knobs exist at all levels of the system. And I find that a very congenial way to think about things as a scientist, because that's what we do as scientists. If we manipulate the hippocampus and we can show that uh, we're changing NMDA receptors and gene expression, or then if we can manipulate the NMDA receptors and gene expression and show that we're changing the circuits in the hippocampus, that is the actually the definition of a mechanism, that you can change one level of the mechanism and also change the other and vice versa. If you change one level of the mechanism and don't make any changes at the other level, you suspect my model of this mechanism is just wrong right. because that's scientifically, that's what we do. So that's that's the way that I kind of think about it as in terms of neuroscientific explanation. And this cashes out in a lot of important ways for the understanding of, you know, free will from a neurobiological point of view, which is what we're going to get to eventually. But that, yeah. that kind of notion of multi-level explanation is really critical here. And I tried to give it some real clothes for you in talking about a specific neural system, but you know, it's only so much you can do. No, it's fantastic. And I'm going to, I'm going to try and give it a different layer of clothes coming from psychology that I think is, and, and I have been, actually myself kind of marveling recently or finding it very interesting that this multi-level causality, multi-level influence all going on at the same time has such a strong correlate between what we know is happening basically at a microscopic level in the brain, although the hippocampus is not microscopic, you could see with the naked eye, but you know, going all the way down to genes and then also at the fully macroscopic level of a human person in a, in a society. So let me just – I'll give an example. This is off the cuff, so it's not going to be quite as good as as the spatial, you know, whatever, neural mechanism stuff. But let's just say an indigenous teenager in Alaska is having depressive symptoms as she tries to get through high school, right? So – We've got a few levels here, starting as low as possible. Uh, she may have a, a mood disorder, and we could give her an SSRI that would lower some of her depressive symptoms and give her a little bit of space to kind of to kind of deal with things. We might have some generational trauma from the way that her tribe has been treated within their land in Alaska, and that has led to socioeconomic differences between native kids and white settler kids, and perhaps she and her friends 
all are lower socioeconomic status than most of their white friends. And this plays into some of her feelings of inferiority around, you know, not having as nice of clothes, not having a, a good car to drive like her other friends at high school. And let's say uh, being in Alaska, there is a, a different sense of representation in the country. And also uh, certain commodities are more expensive to get out to where she lives. And this gives her less access than some people that she knows on the Internet that live in the lower 48. And that contributes to her depression. And also her parents are splitting up and they're divorced. You know, so that's a different level in her a family level. There's a, a thing called the, the Bronfenbrenner's ecological systems theory is what it's called in in psychology of like putting an individual in all these sort of scalloped rings of causality and influence, starting with just them and then all the way out to their country, right? The nation that they live in. And it's really akin to what you're talking about in in the sense of it's not like the one thing always determines the other. But if you go in and you mess with one, you'll start to notice differences in the other one. So if the antidepressants start to work, well, she's responding to her parents differently. All of a sudden, their lives change a little bit because their daughter is being more kind to them and less combative, right? You know, wh- however you want to say it, you you can you can get in. If, if all of a sudden the utility company gets their act together and these things become – you know, electricity and and gas and whatever are are flowing more freely. Well, that changes the and all of a sudden all the parents in the neighborhood aren't so keyed up anymore because their basic needs are being met. You know, so it's uh, it's just another way of thinking about this kind of multi-level thing. How do you feel like that went pretty good for the top of my head? Yeah, pretty good. I, I agree with you. I mean, so human systems are very, very complex, and uh, and it's not easy to do controlled experiments in human systems, right? right. That's, in, a, in a mouse brain, we can actually do some controlled experiments and hold some variables constant and, and move the others. But when you get into complex human systems, you are really reasoning about causality is doubly tough or triply tough. Dan, one of my favorite examples of this kind of how this multi-level view of organization and causality makes a real difference. It came to me in 2006 or so when I saw an article in the New York Times announcing the Lasker Prize winners for that year. So the Lasker Prize, you can think of as kind of an American biomedical Nobel Prize. And a remarkable number of Lasker Award winners go on to win Nobel Prizes, actually. And in 2006, 2007, along in there, Alaska Prize was awarded to Aaron Beck, which really startled me because Aaron Beck is not a biologist. He's a psychiatrist, and he's, a, he's the person who invented cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay? Yeah, we have and, an anxiety scale and depression scale that we use that he coded, the Beck anxiety, uh, whatever, and Beck depression. Good. I don't forget what the I stands for, but yeah, he's a big name in psychology. Yeah. And, and CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is is one of the most uh, well-documented, successful talk therapies, right? And it's one that insurance companies will actually pay for, and that it can actually yeah. demonstrate objectively good effects in a relatively modest amount of time. And what, what captured my attention there was, was that a, a Lasker was being given for a talk therapy 
Whereas the whole field of psychiatry for the previous three decades had moved in a prescription writing direction, right? When all the neurotransmitters were discovered in the 1970s or so. And finally, psychiatrists didn't have to just talk to their patients. They had knobs they could turn, right? They could write prescriptions and they could, they could manipulate serotonin systems or norepinephrine systems or whatever inside the brain. And suddenly they had some of the same power that other fields of medicine had. And the whole field went toward prescription writing there for a few decades. But suddenly, here's Aaron Beck winning Alaska Award for a talk therapy. And the, the best science now seems to be that if you do controlled, you know, double-blinded, placebo-controlled clinical trials on acutely depressed patients and give some groups antidepressant drugs, some groups behavioral therapy, some group, one group, both together, you can demonstrate that both CBT and the SSRIs have positive effects at a group level on depression, but the patients who do the best are the ones who get both together. Now, to me, that says something really important about us as human beings. It says that there are knobs we can turn at the bottom-up level, at the serotonin synaptic level, right? And there are knobs we can turn at the behavioral, the cognitive behavioral level. And both are important. And if we neglect either one of them or we deny the existence of either one of them, we are being poor scientists, and we're being poor clinicians, right? Uh, And if you really want to do the best by your patients, a multi-pronged strategy that in essence acknowledges this multi-level reality of who we are as human beings, uh, that is the scientifically accurate and ethically responsible way to approach human beings. And that's, that's really one of my favorite examples. We could go to others, right? But I think that one really makes the case just about as clear as a bell. I love that. And actually, I love that as another way of thinking about what that, you know, combo means, because because that's something that we've been learning a lot. And, and it's so clear in the literature that always, if you can, you know, combining pharmacological intervention and therapy is is the jam. But that's cool to think of it as a proof for multi-level approaches. And I would actually say that what you're calling top down, I would even put at least two levels of, of top down, the kind of cognitive behavioral stuff where you give someone skills. That's what we call it for like uh-huh. next time you have a panic attack. What are some things you can do? Exercises, self-talk you can give yourself to remind yourself what's happening. My dad, when I had panic attacks, my dad, who's a therapist, he gave me a great image. He said, you're going to ride a wave. Once your panic attack starts, it's going to take a while for all that adrenaline to go through your system, and you need to just tell yourself that you're at the beginning of riding a wave that will eventually recede. And even just having that image was helpful. That's like the lower or the medium level of the of the top down. And then up top, even higher than that, like more of a global thing is like, who am I? What is my narrative? What What is the story I tell about myself? Where am I headed? What are my goals? If I'm making a decision between time with my son and writing another article to get published in a journal, if I have to choose, like, what do I choose? And that's even, I would say, another level up from the kind of like cognitive behavioral therapy stuff, which is usually pretty short term. It's about sort of a a fairly quick kind of a process. But of course, it doesn't really matter. None of these are real distinguishable levels, as you said earlier. They're just ways for us to talk about What's going on at different levels of this complex system? Yeah, and, and I would, I, you know, the neurobiologist in me would hasten to say that 
anything that has real effects on behavior is having real effects on the brain. Right. Okay? So, so it's a sort of a central dogma in neuroscience. And I, I don't actually know where you would come down on this, Dan, uh, with your different training and perspective. But I, what I would call a central dogma in neuroscience is that all of our mental life, our sense of a conscious self, our sense of making decisions, our perception of the world is inextricably linked to the biology of the brain. Yeah. Now, I chose my words carefully there. I said it's inextricably linked. I didn't linked. say it determined by i didn't say you know i didn't i didn't use a, a lot of trump language there but it's not magic okay i i'm not a dualist i don't think that there is a, a, a personhood that's out there in a cartesian world a mind that uh where all of the magic cognition goes on and then somehow that mind has to find a way to interface with the brain I think that all of these things are properties of the brain and high-level constructs that influence our narratives, our stories about ourselves, our beliefs, our aspirations, our goals, our social milieu. All of these things are reflected in higher states, higher-level states of organization of the brain. So it's not detached from the brain. It's part of what the brain does. But as long as we can see brain activity as this multi-level, multi-layered system with increasingly complex interactions and all of these things being part of the causal explanation, then there is room for linking and understanding psychology and people's behavior and complex cognition in neural terms that doesn't seek to say at a fundamentalist level, ah, once we understand it at level X in the brain, then we'll, we can get rid of that folk psychology stuff. You know, I don't, I, I think that's a pipe dream. I think some folk psychology we can get rid of, right? I mean, people used to attribute certain diseases to demons that right. probably don't exist. And that kind of folk psychology we need to get rid of and we yeah. need to leave behind once we start understanding how the system works. But there's much folk psychology that works because it's real. It's really connected to actual neurobiological systems and, and actions in the brain. Right. Like you need to cry it out. You need to actually let yourself experience that grief and talk about it with a friend. That That is as old as any other folk wisdom. And that is true. Actually, if you hold things in and you don't process them or whatever, then you end up ruminating and you, you build the wrong kind of like you dig the wrong kind of trenches in your plastic brain and you, you know. So, yes, I do agree with you, by the way, that. Everything that makes us human, in fact, everything that even that we that makes us Christian, you know, sort of everything where we all our interaction with God, such as such a, as whatever it actually is, you know, I have my intuitions about that. All of that is inextricably tied to the brain. And if you turn off some electricity to part of my brain, I will not have those same experiences the way that I have them now. Uh, so right. I'm I'm fully convinced of that myself. And yeah, the that Cartesian that the. the Descartes idea that we have an immaterial soul that somehow interacts with our physical body, I think is just completely untenable uh, in today's world, personally. It's hard for me to think of because the neurobiologist in me then has to say, well, how in the world does that immaterial soul interact with the brain? I mean, there is a, another level of question about this kind of thing, Dan, which is kind of a functionalist interpretation. 
So, you know, there are a lot of cognitive scientists out there who are trying to understand cognition with kind of black box models and trying to learn about cognitive states from behavioral experiments. And they, they believe that they can get onto the truth of the matter of how some cognitive process like attention works in the human brain through a combination of psychological behavioral level experiments and models, right, that make quantitative predictions. And those models don't have to be for cognitive science at the level of neurons and synapses, right? They can be, they can be sort of more coarse-grained macro-level processes going on. And the cognitive scientists will say, you know, functionally, we can show that these are on to truth. These models reproduce behavioral phenomena we see in humans. Uh, they make predictions that we can test. And, you know, as a cognitive science scientist, it doesn't really matter to me how it's related to the wetware in the brain. I'm convinced it is related to the wetware in the brain. And some neuroscientist who's really interested in that, I'd love to see what answers they come up with. But it doesn't really matter. You know, at, at the level of cognition, we have our hands now on a model that works and that describes the system. And whatever's happening in the brain, it's got to come back to these key elements of our models. So, you know, they would argue probably that, you know, the most profound level of understanding is at that is at that modeling level. If you can build models that reproduce human behavior well and make predictions that you can test and surprising predictions that turn out to be true. So from that point of view, some principles about brain function could be detached from the actual biology of the brain. So you could get into a, a realm there where you might start, you know, <laughs> you might start putting some some bones on a Cartesian idea about, you know, that that really our understanding of the brain is about information, not about neurons and synapses, and membranes and, and action potentials. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that Brains are organs. They're biological organs. They get diseases. And when they get diseases, you want to be able to treat them. And if you want to be able to treat them, it's not good enough to have a cognitive science model. You really need to understand what's happening at the level of neurons, neurotransmitters. You need to understand how the machine, uh, how the organ is really working in order to be able to intervene and treat psychiatric and neurological disease. So it, it is a little caution. When, when I say, you know, when you and I say, Every, we appear to agree on this, that everything about our cognition, our emotion, our perception, even our religious experience is linked to parts of the brain. And if parts of the brain get damaged, there are going to be some kinds of experience that we just are not able to have, that we used to be able to have. But we, we want to be careful not to reduce it totally to the brain and realize that there's this intermediate level of modeling at a sort of a macro level and trying to understand at a macro level how these complicated neural systems are interacting together, that, that it really provides useful knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting. I, I'm kind of thinking of it like baseball. So, <laughs> Okay. Uh, yeah, I like baseball. I'm a fan. Go Giants. Yeah. Oh, yes. Go Giants. Having a great year right now. Yeah. I love the movie Moneyball and loved the book as well. And, you know, so Bill James, when he's doing his, you know, calculations on what really matters to get runs and therefore win baseball games, you know, I think that the consensus now is something like on base percentage times four plus slugging percentage or flip those around. It's something like that. It's not batting average. It's not some of these things that people typically think. And so if you're the manager of the Oakland A's, you might say, well, look, I don't care how you get on base. I just care that you get on base. And because what I'm trying to do is get runs so that I can win games. That's my 
that's my goal here. That's what I want to do. It's my uh, intention for the for the situation. That's what I would say of this cognitive model thing. So maybe it's true that at the cognitive level, so above the above the neurological level, the way that we conceive of ourselves and make decisions and all that, that that's where you can get some modeling that helps you predict behavior. And what you're really trying to do is predict behavior because you want to reduce suicidality or you want to, you know, increase pro-social behavior, whatever it is. I would say, great. So maybe that's the best thing to use to achieve your ends, but to then jump from that to say, well, the real sausage is made at the cognitive level. It is some kind of informational, non-physical soul type thing. It's not a spiritual soul, but it's an informational soul of you. Like, then I just think you're going beyond, like, just stop at, this is what I want to do. And this is the best way to measure what I want to do and help those outcomes. Cool. Don't then go out over your skis and say, and therefore we don't need neurobiology or whatever. I mean, that's stupid. Yeah, well, there are a lot of people in this business going out on over their skis on a routine basis. Well, people want to sell books. They want to get they want to get the Gifford lectures. I mean, whatever you know, they want they all want, the they want their name in the New York Times, right? Exactly, Published in the New York Times. So, exactly. Uh, scientists have those same weaknesses that normal people have. It turns out, scientists are just people. Yeah, and uh, I mean podcasters too. You know, my my big thing with Sam oh, Harris oh, and now now you're going on difficult <laughs> ground. I mean, uh, I podcaster mean... that's a whole different. They're <laughs> higher order being. <laughs> <laughs> that is a that is a subtle dig that is funny enough that I will accept it and take it, Bill. <laughs> Some people like to support this show financially. They are a part of what is called the Patreon campaign. They are patrons, or as we like to say in the Facebook group, which is patron only, permissionaries. I didn't come up with that, but I think it's very funny. Uh, Permissionaries get access to two exclusive episodes per month. And recently, we have been responding to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. And I've got an episode with myself, Tony Jones, and Sari Concepcion that will come out tomorrow, which is a response to episodes, I guess it's six and seven of that uh, podcast. Uh, The Brand and State of Emergency are the names of those titles of those episodes. So if you want to hear those response episodes, or if you want access to the patron-only Facebook group, you can become a patron for five bucks a month at youhavepermissionpodcast.com. You can click become a patron or patreon.com slash Dan Coke. The link is in the show notes to that. And back to my conversation with Bill. I want to spend a little time on bottom-up influences because this is something that has changed the way that I think about people and their value and their place in society and how I ought to relate to them as a result of my own psychological education and recognizing that there are a lot of things that people don't choose that end up coming up and affecting the things that it appears to me that they do choose, right? So 
drug addiction. I, these are some notes from one of your lectures in utero exposure to various chemicals, right? So the decisions that their mothers make when they're in the womb, genetic variation, the fight or flight system. So people who have had more adverse childhood experiences and or experienced trauma as adults, their fight or flight systems can be activated more easily. This is all what also what happens when you have a panic attack. I didn't choose to have panic attacks in third grade. Thankfully, I had a bunch of other things buffering me throughout my life that allowed me to become a fully functioning and fairly healthy adult. But if I hadn't, then those panic attacks might have had, maybe I get dropped down a grade in school, maybe I get put in special ed, maybe, you know, all these things. And these are things that are not chosen to, to kind of come back to free will. And even though I knew that about, for instance, homeless people before I was in school, Learning more about it just changes. It, it frankly makes me see the world more like it seems like Jesus saw the world in the Gospels of this lack of judgment. My favorite way of thinking about judge not lest you be judged is really this through this kind of psychological education of like, how much will do you have? And maybe we can use this as a way to finally get into explicit talk about our will and our freedom. So that's a lot to, to throw out on a plate, but just respond to whatever you'd like. Yeah, no, that resonates with me, Dan. An example, I mean, you you mentioned several influences on our behavior there that we really have no control over. We didn't choose them. And, you know, particularly timely, given the social situation we're living in at this particular point in time, example for me is culture that influences us in ways that we don't even realize. So, for example, I'm 69 years old. I was born in 1952. I grew up in a small town in the South in the 1950s and 1960s. And I live in a little town of 10,000 people that was rigidly segregated. So we had black schools, we had white schools, bathrooms, different areas of the movie theater you sit in, black swimming pools, white swimming pools, the works, right? And that's yeah. just the system I grew up in. That's the culture that I grew up in. And, uh, you know, it was a real struggle for lots of us in the 1960s with the civil rights movement and, you know, all the upheaval, which was a time that was actually far more intense than what we're living through right now. And I and many other people living in that system were forced against our will sometimes, sometimes in, in correspondence with our will as we watched events unfold on television, but we were forced to re-examine a lot of basic assumptions about the system that we lived in and, and systems of oppression that were very clear if you just started looking around at, at the data around you. And so it's been, you know, a lifelong project for me. I mean, when stuff gets instilled in you, attitudes get instilled in you at a very early age, they ripple through your behavior, ripple through your attitudes in ways that you don't even realize, right? And you have to actively expunge those things if you're going to make any progress on them. And it's been a lifelong project for me. It's one that's still going on. And it's received another, you know, kick in the seat of the pants and juice to get up and get moving with events of the last two years in our country. So this kind of gets us onto another kind of terrain. You know, when, 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 to the extent that we are subject to unconscious influences like that, whether they're culture, whether they are childhood trauma experiences, whether they're brain circuitry that makes you more prone to panic attacks, you know, we don't choose those things. And, and, And to that extent, we're not free, right? We don't, we don't have, free will. 
But I would say that when you become conscious of some of these things, as you've worked to do with your panic attacks, and you've become conscious at a meta level that you're on this this, this stream and that it's going to have a natural time course and a natural end and you understand it better, then you can modulate it better. You have more freedom to modulate it and live with it and not not be afraid of it. And, you know, in my situation, once I became aware of, you know, the impact of the system that I grew up in, the social system, the, the segregated Jim Crow system that I grew up in, then I was able to make choices. I was able to make different choices. And many times those choices, uh, you know, were driven by cognitive conviction that things were wrong. And I still would have emotions that would be racist at times, but uh, the cognitive convictions convinced me that I needed to change it. And quite frankly, a lot of it was religious convictions convinced me that I needed to change. And as I said, it, it wasn't easy. It's been an ongoing process. But the key point I'm trying to make here is that you don't have the freedom to change until you become conscious of these biasing influences on behavior. And I think that's a really important point that freedom to some extent is is learned and it's a lifelong project now you may look at some of the unconscious influences on your behavior that you were given by your culture your genes or whatever you may decide those are good i want to hang on to them i want to keep them right my parents basically raised me to be polite and naturally considerate of other people and I just do that out of habit. It's no great moral virtue. I do it kind of out of habit. But then I look at it and say, well, where did that come from? And, and I think, well, that was a pretty good thing they gave me. That was a gift they gave me. And I, I want to keep up with that one, right? But the point is, when I become aware, then I can make the choice. Only then can I make the choice, right? So this gets into consciousness as well. Some people you know, argue, as you well know, that consciousness is just kind of epiphenomenal fluff that rides along on top of brain activity. And it has no actual causal power. It's just narratives that we tell ourselves about events. Uh, and sometimes they can be right. Sometimes they can be egregiously wrong. But see, I think that it's only when you become conscious of these many, many subterranean effects on behavior. It's only then that you have the freedom to choose. So I think consciousness has causal power in that respect. So I'm not your typical reductionist neuroscientist in that in that sense either. Yeah, that connects us back to the very first thing we talked about with, of that kind of broad scale reductionism. I mean, look, mindfulness works. I mean, it, it's it's clear in people's anecdotal experiences, it's clear in my own experience, and it's clear in controlled trials and peer-reviewed research. If that if that combination is not good enough for you, then you are an ideologue, and I don't know what to tell you, and, and enjoy, your, enjoy your certainty of whatever you think is going on in the world. Now, it might – this is often actually, Bill, how I think about my Christian faith. It might be true that mindfulness – and when I say mindfulness works, what I mean is – Getting some distance from your thoughts. So in this kind of – in a lot of these therapeutic modalities, it's called fusion. So I am my thoughts is our starting place. So I have a thought that I'm going to do bad. Well, then I am I'm going to do bad or I am bad. And then mindfulness and this is also comes into CBT. It, it, it's a little bit of lack of definition. Some A lot of these things are using similar modules of our brain, right? But basically going, okay, I had a thought I'm going to do bad and now I let that thought go and I'll have a different thought later and I don't have to be that thought, right? So that's what I mean by mindfulness. That works. It works with addiction. It works with marital problems. It works with depression and anxiety. Now, it might be the case 
that what is actually going on is that none of that has any causal power. And for some in quantum mechanical reason, people who engage in mindfulness practices get better, but it is not because they do. It's like, it just, the, it was always predetermined physically from the dawn of time that Dan would do mindfulness and experience less anxiety symptoms. Now, here's what I say to that. Okay, fine. If that's true, then it's true and there's nothing I can do about it. But I'm going to live as if I can choose to do mindfulness so that I do more mindfulness, so that I get better. And that's it's exactly how I feel about experience of God through prayer and religious activity. It is possible that God does not exist. It's also possible, by the way, that our language of God exists is sort of meaningless because it just doesn't capture what's going on. But let's just say it's a fiction. There just is the physical world. And all this stuff, just like consciousness, is epiphenomenal. It is not the thing itself. It is some random, unplanned consequence of whatever the true fact state of affairs is. Well, fine. But if that's true, I have no way of knowing it, number one. And number two, I'm going to live as if that's not the case, that like there is love at the center of the universe, the way that all religions have basically agreed upon, that when I when I have what is accurately described compared to other literature as religious experiences, when I have those, that those are real in some sense, that there is actual content to them. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, and it won't matter. I'll die and I'll not remember it and, and nothing. But if I'm right, then I'm going to have more of those. I'm going to put myself in a position to have more of those because when I have them, I love my wife and my son better. I love my community better. I focus better on the task at hand. It's kind of a moot point to me unless you could show that you know the counterfactual is actually better for people and better for the world or whatever. But I think that the kind of despair that naturally comes from I have no choices and there is no meaning in the universe, I think you're very hard-pressed to find a good argument that that is better for people and society individually and collectively than believing that we have some sort of stake in our future as individuals and as a group. That was a lot to say. Please respond. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there, again, there's much in there of what you say that I resonate with. You know, one of my favorite Christian authors is Frederick Buechner. He has this little book, little thin book, a uh, series of short essays on various uh, religious topics called Wishful Thinking. Mm. Uh, and he talks about, you know, the possibility of... Uh, religion being wishful thinking, right? That's that's what that's why it's caricatured many times in kind of popular literature. And he goes on then to say, but the deep Christian conviction is that's the truth that sets us wishing in the first place. You know, it's this um, it's this deep intuition that's uh, implanted or that we come to about what kind of universe we really live in. And, and I, I resonate very much with what you said, that, you know, my intuition and my belief and my hope is that we live in a universe where, you know, love is at the center and where 
people matter, but I don't want to be too Earth-centric or human-centric about this. There are many worlds out there and probably beings that we don't know anything about. And I suspect that that principle of love will be lie at the heart of whatever kind of culture exists there as well. So I agree with you, and I agree with you that it's, it's a choice sometimes. It's just an interpretation of reality at some level. And some interpretations of reality lead me to live what I think is a better life than other interpretations of reality. And if that's true, I'm going to stick with the one that leads a better life. So, you know, people ask me sometimes, I have, I've obviously being academia and all, I have many agnostic and atheist friends and people will ask me, you know, you really go to church on Sundays, you know, this, this archaic kind of, kind of thing. And I say, yes, I do. And they say, why? You know, what's, what's, what's there for you? And, and the truth is that that's where, you know, I need to, I need to be there once a week or, you know, ideally once a day, although I don't, I don't practice that, but I need to be there because in church, I'm reminded at, at the very highest level who I am, who I want to be, what what my true aspirations and goals are for this, you know, the years that I'm granted on this planet. And I, I don't know where I would get that if I didn't go to church on Sunday mornings. I wouldn't get it at Stanford in some classroom, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't get it at a bar down on California Avenue. I don't, I don't know where I would get it. I feel that I need that and that it makes me a better father. It makes me a better husband. It makes me uh, probably a better teacher at Stanford, right? It makes me more compassionate teacher, I think. So I think you and I are on the same wavelength there. And I'm really interested, you know, as an aside, in ways that that kind of community, a church community or that kind of collective practice and collective emotion, collective whatever – you know, some of what a lot of what we understand as church is basically a dying cultural relic from the mid-century, you know, that really worked in the suburbs in the 1950s. And I'm interested to see how that might change, but I'm not interested personally in just like throwing out all of the beliefs from the cultural relic. Like, let's just let's futz around with the culture part, with the actual bones of the thing. Uh, or rather, the, the flesh. Let, let's try different flesh out and keep the bones. But you know, so so to bring us back to, I, I love that. But I I want to bring us back to free will just with our remaining time. And we've talked a lot about sort of impediments to free will, and you you've you've sort of gestured at what free will is. It's kind of a lack of those impediments. It's this positive ability to sort of set our sights to to have our beliefs, our values, our goals actually directing our behavior, right? And then in that sense, we're top-down influencing whatever parts of our body then, you know, enact that stuff, right? How do we get more of that? Like, how do we become people with more freedom? Uh, Freedom in this sense is not, and and tell me if I'm right here, freedom of will for you is, is not so much like a state of affairs that all people have, although maybe everyone has some of it. It's more like a good it's like a good to be sought after and to be increased. Uh, a flourishing person has more freedom of will and a, and a languishing person has less. A, a, a person in deep suffering without their needs being met has very little freedom. And we want to be increasing that. Is that right? Yeah, totally right. Yeah, I teach a little bit with students. I'm not, a, I'm not deeply 
educated in, in philosophy and various approaches to free will. But, you know, it seems to me that real bottom-up determinism doesn't really work as an adequate description of human behavior and free will for all the, all the reasons that we've been discussing for the last 45 minutes to an hour. The system is just too complex. It's, 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 it's impacted by too many different unpredictable things. I, you know, some people try to get out of a bottom-up determinism by through quantum mechanics, but I don't really think that works very well. Now, there's some really smart people who do, like Roger Penrose and uh, John Polkinghorne, but I've talked to a lot of biophysicists who think that the basic macromolecules, you know, that are at the heart of nerve signaling, high-end channels, are too big, really, to exhibit quantum mechanical effects. They have too much mass. And quantum mechanics is probably, that's probably not a real great source to look at uh, for human freedom. And I think another fallacy that we have is that most of us walk around most of the time with the back pocket model of freedom that is that freedom means that my behavior doesn't have any cause to it, right? And if as a cause, if something in my brain is actually causing this, then I'm not free, okay? Yeah, why do we, we, instead we might think of it as like, this choice that I made was only 10% free, and this other one was like 60% free. And like, instead of, well, that was a free choice, and that one was not a free choice, that one was totally determined, I might as well be a squirrel or a dog, but it's like, well, maybe it's degrees, right? Yeah. I mean, my my basic thing is I'm okay with determination, but the kind of determination that I think is most meaningful in freedom is is self-determination. So I that's that's what I kind of think of as autonomy, as self-determination. And if I capture that in a succinct sentence, it's that my behavior is caused, at least in part, by my beliefs, my values, memories, goals, aspirations. And when my behavior is caused by those things, then I'm free. And it's, it's not that there's no cause. It's what is the active cause at the moment? Is the active cause my beliefs and values and memories and aspirations, who I really want to be, or is the active cause at the moment some legacy of my cultural background or my biological background or some coercion that I'm under or some, you know, some medical condition that I have that uh, abrogates some of my self-determination and, and ability to achieve this kind of autonomy. So, so I, I agree with you that uh, there are different levels of freedom and probably we're not purely free or pure really bound in most of our everyday life. And and I'm saying freedom here. I'm not eliminating causality. I I want causality in my brain um, so that, so that, you know, I can reliably see the cars coming down the street and avoid them. Right. I don't want a quantum mechanical event to happen that I miss the 132nd car coming down the street and I'm flattened by it. Right. I want reliable mechanisms in my brain at all levels. I want reliable mechanisms, but the question is which, mechanisms are active at any given time? Are they the mechanisms that mediate value and aspiration and our higher intuitions? Or are they mechanisms that mediate selfishness and hurriedness and racist, uh, you know, all of all of these other things that we're subject to? And, and, it, and it's a constant balance and it's a constant matter of growth and it, it changes over time. So I, I resonate very much with what you're saying. Yeah, and I think in America especially, we kind of fetishize 
a certain kind of free will of like uh, completely uncaused, completely chosen. You know, we're we're the most individualistic nation probably in the history of humanity, the most individualistic culture. But, you know, I'm thinking a little bit of like Eastern thought here. Uh, I'm thinking about the Taoism, for instance, of like there is a kind of a flow to things and you can push against the current if you want, but you're going to get a lot more done if you channel the current. Right. So you could say, well, I want to build the water wheel over here because this is a better view for my house. But, you know, you should probably put the water wheel over here where the water is already flowing and you're going to generate more electricity or milling or whatever you're using your water wheel for and just put up with the view of the house being there, you know, or I think about I think it's Aikido, which is the the type of martial arts where you take the momentum of your opponent and you use that rather than brute force trying to move them with your body, right? And I just think about like, you know, I have chosen to do things like become a psychologist, host a podcast, for instance, you've chosen to be a neuroscientist. If I said, you know what, screw all that, I'm going to be, I want to be a bricklayer and a carpenter. Well, Bill, let me tell you how things would probably go for me if I tried to force myself into that line of work. I am not well equipped for that line of work. I, I should not be using my physical body to earn money. That is one of the things I'm surest about in this whole world. And so in a sense, we don't actually want to sheer will ourselves into things. We, in practice, we take what we've got and we, we go a little this way. We go 10 degrees that way. And we say, well, I have this skill. I'm pretty good communicator. Maybe I'll try podcasting with that communication skill. Right. Rather right. than why don't I try and become I'm a talker. I think I'll become a, a silent monk. No, that would be, you know, probably a bad move for me. So I, I don't know. I think there's something there as well that we bring in probably as Westerners, but especially as Americans. Yeah, I I confess that one of my shortcomings or is that I'm not really well aware of you know deep spiritual aspects of other cultures. I mean, I've done some reading in world religions, obviously, just to figure out where they're coming from. But in terms of actual practices of Buddhism or, you know, or even take any religion away from it, just mindless, but mindfulness, not mindlessness, mindfulness. <laughs> mindfulness, yeah. <laughs> I I haven't delved deeply into those areas, and I think that they're probably, I, I could benefit from it. So I'm really interested in, in what you have to say about that. And certainly some of it is is good. I mean, I think, for example, I've been very, very fortunate to be an academic. I think I'm a natural academic. I drifted into it, uh, and I feel very privileged to have been a part of academia all these years, a swirl of ideas and people and creating new knowledge and transmitting knowledge. I feel very grateful for that. Uh, sometimes I have fantasies about having you know, if I could have chosen another thing, being a great basketball player, I love basketball even more than baseball. In fact, I've always told people that I had the soul of a power forward trapped in the body of a university professor. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know, it wouldn't be good for me to try that. I do not have the right genetic heritage for right. that. That kind of vocation. I don't, uh, you know, our, our freedom is limited, right? I don't, I don't have the freedom to be a great singer or a really good basketball player. I, I can be a recreational basketball player or could when I was younger, my joints didn't ache so badly. 
but I, I don't, I don't really have that freedom now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> same here. Uh, and, uh, offline, we should talk about the Warriors prospects for next season. Cause I'm feeling pretty good yeah. about them. Okay. Well, I mean, I think we're basically wrapped up unless you want to add anything just sort of application wise. Why don't we talk about one thing that there's a certain, just uh, to inject a kind of a note of realism here and keep from being too Pollyannish. So Dan, I think that, you know, one thing you and I likely agree on, though we don't know each other well enough yet to really know this, we want to be realistic about religion. And while you and I both find very positive influences of our Christian faith in our life, I think we both know that religion Religion can get sick sometimes, and religion is not a uniformly positive influence, and I I think we don't want to be Pollyannish about that. You know, there were parts of the religious culture that I grew up in, in the South, in a very conservative place, that were damaging, actually, and that I had to kind of grow out of, and at some point decide which pieces and parts I sort of thought were positive and, and helpful and, you know, contributed to flourishing and which parts were actually wrong and actually damaging and cruel to people and inconsiderate of other people. And that I just needed to leave behind, quite frankly. And certainly, you know, we see a lot of um, religiously motivated warfare and anger and divisions in our own society. And it's, it's of some great concern. Religion is, is very powerful. The, the, the wellsprings of it are very powerful psychologically, and they can be used for evil as much as they can for good. And we hope for good, and we want that to be our experience and the experience of others, but it's not uniformly that way. And religion itself has, has a ways to go to, to become a universally positive kind of experience. Yeah, I mean, you don't you don't know me well enough to know this, but I my own research is around spiritual abuse and spiritual harm, and uh, I like to use my favorite metaphors to describe religion as nuclear fission. When done well, it can produce clean energy for millions and millions of people, and when something goes wrong, it can create an atomic bomb or a nuclear fallout that destroys tens of thousands of homes and kills people. It is just a very powerful force. And that's the, that's why if you are a grifter and what you want to do is convince a bunch of people to follow you, you should be a religious figure. That's probably the most bang for your buck. Uh, oh. And now there are sort of like what, you know, there's coastal non-religious versions of that that tap into very similar psychological modules, I think, for these other kind of, you know, like Nixium, that those type of cults that – is there are their own scam. It's the same old narcissistic bullshit just wrapped in a way that gets people today, you know, but that stuff is powerful. Those are the most powerful parts of our psychology, maybe to use some very technical language parts of our psychology. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. And my goal is to do whatever I can to make the church or religious settings in general, more healthy and less unhealthy and more resistant to grifters, narcissists, and you know bad actors, uh, so that they can be places where people can flourish in congruence with their ideals, you know, and their beliefs and their and their values, basically. You know, another thing we haven't touched on 
But another thing I'm convinced of about freedom is that freedom is really wrapped up a lot with discipline. Yes. That's kind of paradoxical, right? You might think that, you know, true freedom is the freedom to eat anything you want to anytime you want to, right? That burger, those fries, which I love, or, you know, freedom might in the end be a lot more about impulse control, right? Because a lot of our impulses are bad for us. And freedom is not unrestrained behavior. Freedom is not being able to do whatever you want to, irrespective of the rights and privileges of other people around you. Freedom sometimes involves making decisions that actually bring transiently at least some suffering or pain on ourselves. My wife's favorite example of this, uh, since she's had her first one recently, is that there is no other creature on the planet that would volunteer for a colonoscopy. Uh, right. <laughs> right. We don't do that because it feels good. <laughs> we don't do that because it taps into pleasure and reward circuits in our brain. We, we do that because of scientific understanding that we've reached about disease and care about the future. And, you know, just uh, things like investing in retirement, investing for your future self in some sense, or taking care of your health for your future self involve discipline. But yet in that discipline lies more freedom because it frees you up to have more options at particular points in your life. so that that link between freedom and discipline, I mean, you can overdo that, right? You can become over-regimented and over-disciplined and all cramped up and uh, tied in on yourself and a prisoner of everyone's expectations of you. So the, finding that balance of kind of discipline and, and freedom is not an easy thing. But that's, that's, that's another thing that I think is important, an important perspective to keep in mind when we talk about human freedom. Oh, that's great. <sighs> We're going to have to chat more at some point, even if it's not on the podcast, just a conference or something. I'm really interested in that. And there's also some there's a cool mediating quality to most spiritual disciplines that people who do them find this benevolent God, this benevolent force as a part of it, this accepting and loving force, which I think moderates that capacity to go more towards an obsessive compulsive or ruminating kind of discipline where you are repressing and you are holding yourself to impossible guidelines to control your anxiety or whatever, uh, which would be sort of too far afield and the wrong kind of discipline, that there is a kind of uh, warmth and openness and freedom that people who take the spiritual discipline seriously tend to experience that helps with that. Also, someday it would be interesting to talk about sort of Calvinistic determination at a theological level and and how that plays into some of this conversation around freedom and and constraint, you know, at the neurological level. But we're out of time, so that will just have to be for some other day. Yeah, exactly. Well, pleasure to chat with you. Absolutely. Bill, thank you so much. Great conversation. I look forward to more in the future. Take care. Thanks to Bill for joining me for this uh, very informative conversation. It just makes me feel good to know that there are people at the absolute top of their scientific field who uh, reject the kind of cheap, um, I don't know what to call it, reductionism or, I don't know, pseudo-intellectualism? Is that too harsh of a term? 
uh, for uh, a lot of the new atheist positions. Um, I don't know. I'm not really sure how to describe those positions, but it's just encouraging to talk to somebody like Bill. I feel like I'm being overly, uh, I don't know, descriptive of my emotions around this issue. Maybe this one really lights up some various things for me. I don't know. Maybe that's something to think about in therapy. Okay, and that is a good sign to end the episode. Thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing this conversation. He's available for more work, and his email is in the show notes. To become a patron, patreon.com slash dancoke. Uh, there's also links to, like, you know, sellyourdeconstructing.com, those free resources for people who are going through faith change. Yeah, there's other, some other stuff in the show notes. You could check it out. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>